know probably not too many, but there are a few. How many of you in our sanctuary this morning went to the very first Wyumi retreat? Okay. Not as many as I have thought, but I have the privilege of introducing one of those men who spoke to us and taught us the Word of God and taught us all about new tribes and how it is that a person begins the journey to become a missionary with new tribes. And uh would like to introduce Steve and his wife, the better half, Sharon. Would you mind standing up, Sharon, so everybody knows how Steve has been so successful? <laughs> and uh, for those who were not in ABF, uh, you missed a real blessing. Shame on you. Uh, Caitlin and Seth and Natalie. Caitlin is the wife, Seth is the husband, Natalie is the little two-year-old. And they're way in the back. Be sure and say hello to them before you go today. By the grace of God, they're headed to Papua New Guinea in 2018. So without, I have a lot of things I could say about you, but I'm not going to. So we're going to just turn the service over to our brother Steve. Are you going to pray before you start? Go ahead. I'd just like to open up the, the time that Steve's going to share with us. Father, we are grateful for this privilege and opportunity to hear from Brother Steve. Many of us have heard him teach, and uh, we're excited about hearing about what he has to share this morning. And above all that, Father, we pray that the Spirit of God would anoint him with what you want him to say. That I know he has prepared, but Lord, you be the teacher through this this morning. Speak through his heart and to us, and that you might in all of it be honored and glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. I hope I didn't knock your microphone off. I don't think so. Nope. Good morning. Uh, it's a real privilege for us to be here. You're, you've been on our turf three or four times now, I think. Folks from your church have been down to where my wife and I are stationed in central Pennsylvania, the Wyumi campus. So uh, very good to finally get to see the context that you all come from. I don't know if there's any church that's been there more than you guys have had, have been there, to be honest, four times in eight years. That's really something. Uh, just a real privilege for us to be here also this morning with our kids. When, when Mike called and asked, you know, would, would we accompany Seth and Caitlin up here as they come and present their ministry, what God's leading them to do over in New Guinea, would we come and, and be part of that? This is the first opportunity we've had to do that as parents. And uh, I just, you know, I couldn't help but sit there in Sunday school listening to that think, I just can't believe this, you know. I mean, how many times did we drag that boy along with us to churches when he was three, four years old doing the thing he's doing now, and now we're sitting there listening to him? Uh, that was just a real... A real treat. And Mike asked me, he said, Would, could, you, could you weave in a little bit of, of the family history? We know that Seth's a second generation missionary, actually a third generation missionary. Could you weave a little bit of that into your, into your time this morning? So I thought, yeah, I'd love to do that. And so I actually started uh, looking. I found some old pictures of, of my parents. Let me introduce you to my hero. That's my hero on the screen right there. I guess any son that can say his dad's his hero is pretty blessed, right? In fact, as I was listening to Seth this morning talk, I remember thinking, you know, my dad never had the chance 
to, uh, to be at any of the, of the opportunities that my wife and had when we were raising our support team to go to the mission field. He was, he was actually, uh, let's see, he passed with cancer about six months after we finished our final training, if I remember right. So just about the stage they're at right now is when my father passed away of cancer. And I just thought, you know, I get to do something he never got to do. Watch your son head off to the mission field. He did get to see that with my older brother. My dad was saved in the Navy. Uh, I think he would say he, he thought he understood the gospel as a kid growing up, but when he got into the Navy and he started to be, you know, challenged by some of his Navy buddies about his faith, he realized he didn't have a clue what he believed. And he became a believer, and when he got out of the Navy, he went to seminary, became a pastor, went to seminary in Chicago, and actually this little church there, I don't have any other pictures of that uh, church that he was in. This little church hired him right out of college, right out of seminary. It was a Czechoslovakian heritage church. And he was serving there with my mother for about eight years. And they had a missionary guest speaker show up. His name was Ken Johnston. And he was actually the, the uh, leader of New Tribes Mission for about 40 years. And this would have been way back in his early days of leading New Tribes Mission, and he talked my dad into going to the mission field to visit with him. They ended up going to Brazil, South America. I've heard all these stories, you know, over the years of what that was like. And my dad said, I saw things that I didn't even know existed in the world. Whole language groups of people without any opportunity to hear the gospel. Nobody in the language has ever heard the gospel. Nobody who speaks that language could share the gospel with anybody else who speaks that language because they are completely cut off from any access to the gospel. They speak their language. The gospel is not in their language. They can't hear the gospel in a second language. He said, I saw missionaries paddling their canoes up rivers in the jungle, going up in there so far that it would take them weeks to get back out if they needed medical attention. They didn't have the money to buy an outboard motor to go up these Amazon tributaries. And it so impacted him. I remember him telling me the story of a guy. He was standing there on the bank with this, with this missionary's wife and children as he got in a canoe and went up. And it was a Yanomamo context. You guys are familiar with them. Not knowing, honestly, if, he would, if he'd be killed up there if he'd ever come back. And my dad said that impacted me so much. I had never met people, knew there were people in the world that would do such a thing. And he came back and he, he resigned his church and uh, became a, a missionary with New Tribes Mission. There, there we are. I'm the littlest guy there in his arms. Uh, those of you who have been to Wyumi, Greg is the, on the other, he's on your far right there. And that, that was their house when they joined the mission. My dad came in to go to the mission field, and the mission asked him, will you stay here and, and travel around to churches and, and tell people what, what's going on out there, what, you know, what's left to be done? We need more missionaries. And he did that for about 33 years till he went to be with the Lord. My dad never made it to the mission field permanently because they had him stationed here the whole time, but he personally was able to visit every single people group that NTM was working with at that stage of our history and over it was over 225 people groups that he visited and saw and so I grew up hearing these stories and seeing his pictures anytime he was going to a church and I could go with him and, and not miss school I was with him and 
And I just heard story after picture after. My dad was good at telling them too. And as a kid, I just remember growing up thinking, that's what I'm going to be. I want to be that right there. And uh, sure enough, that's kind of what happened. Uh, my dad's oldest son, Greg, went off to Venezuela, South America, wound up in a people group called the Yanomamo. Uh, very isolated, extremely isolated people group. Uh, there's about 20, 30,000 of them. Again, they didn't speak any other language but their own, so Greg was part of the team that, that learned the language and shared the gospel with them. And then about 15 years later, he's almost 15 years older than I am. He's the oldest, I'm the youngest. Uh, my wife and I, after meeting in Bible college and getting our training, headed off to Venezuela, and we ended up in a people group that you see on the screen there called the Hoti people. Again, you who have been to Wyumi, you're experts in Hoti language and culture and Yanomamo language and culture, so... You're very familiar with all this. The Hoti and Yanomamo were very different people groups. The Yanomami were very aggressive, violent amongst themselves, not violent to the missionaries, but violent amongst themselves, about as far out on the aggressive scale as you could possibly get. And the Hoti were about as far on the passive, non-aggressive scale as you could possibly get. Couldn't hardly find two people groups more different. And they lived in the same jungle, quite far from each other. Their paths never crossed. They were way too far apart. But the Lord blessed us with the opportunity of going and living with this people group. And uh, we found them to be uh, just extremely pleasant to live with. There's our, our family in the early days. That's uh, Seth on the, on the bottom right. So Seth got to grow up with missionary friends and Hoti friends. His first 15 years of life would have been there, basically, right? About 15 years old when we had to come home. Uh, so he got to experience, you know, all that, the, the parents, mis uh, missionary parents learning the language and finally getting to share the gospel and seeing the people group come to understand who Jesus was and embrace the gospel. The Hoti were, like the Anamamo, they were uh, very isolated from the outside world. So much so that the outside world didn't even know that they existed as a people group. They weren't on any list of unreached peoples or not even on any list of peoples, let alone unreached people group. The government of Venezuela didn't even know that they had a people group called the Hoti in their territory. They lived so far back into the jungle, high up away from the big rivers. If, if a people group lived on the big rivers like the Orinoco or the Amazon, the Amazon's not in Venezuela. Our version of the Amazon is the Orinoco. It's the second largest river in, in South America. People groups that live on the big river, the government knows they're there, right? Because they're doing excursions up in there often, and they, they know where the people groups are. The Hoti didn't live near any big river. They lived way up in the mountain regions, far, far away from the rivers on purpose. They would live on little streams, mainly because they were so pa uh, passive, non-aggressive. They just didn't like to be where anybody else was. They were... Nomadic hunter-gatherers, if you know what I mean by that. They didn't live in big villages. They lived in tiny little groups, maybe two brothers and their families, and they would be wandering the jungle, gathering, harvesting from the jungle. They didn't even grow gardens, if you can believe it back then. They truly lived off the jungle. And it wasn't, honestly, it wasn't a very good existence for them. Uh, food was, was kind of scarce at times. You can see from the picture, you know, that, that picture was taken toward the end of our time there. And, uh, you know, their, their living conditions had greatly improved 
by the time that picture was taken, that's living, that's living pretty good for Hoti right there. They had houses and gardens by this time. You can see they have some pots and metal tools that they would have gotten from us and a whole different style of, of house building and even access to clothing, just a whole different style for them. I was very impressed by them in their world. They were, like I say, hunter-gatherers, and they were masters of the jungle. That's a blowgun you see. You only see a small portion of his blowgun. It's about 12 feet long. Uh, those guys could knock a monkey out of the tree, 80 feet up in the tree, and hit a mate out of 10 times. I've seen little guys knocking hummingbirds out of the air with their blowgun as they, as they prepare for adulthood, you know, to become a good hunter. If you're not a good hunter in the Hoti world, you're going to have a miserable life because no Hoti girl is going to marry you. And I cannot think of a worse existence than being a bachelor in the middle of the jungle. Honestly, it's like, wow, is there a worse station in life than that? I mean, a bachelor back here, at least you have access to food, right, if you don't know how to cook. In the jungle, I'm telling you, it'd be rough. But those guys, they were... You know what I came to learn about the Hoti as I lived with them? Many things, but one of the things that really stood out to me in my time with them is they're just people. I grew up seeing pictures of them my whole life. 200 and some different people groups, you know. And I, to me, they were pictures on a screen. They were, it was interesting and cool. And, you know, when you're a kid and your dad's telling stories of missionaries getting shot by poison darts and all these wilds living out in the middle of a lake on floating houses so they're out of range of the arrows of the people that are trying to kill them. And I'm thinking, whoa, that is so exciting. Now that was like a tiny fraction of the stories I heard. But those are the ones that stood out to me. But I never really thought of them as people till I got to live with them and get to know them. And I found out that they have personalities. All of them have a different personality and they're all unique and they're just fun people to live with. And they like food like I like food. They like different food, right? And didn't really like their food, to be honest with you, too much. But they didn't really like my food that much, especially spaghetti. You want to have fun, give a Hoti person who's never seen spaghetti a bowl of spaghetti to eat and watch what his face looks like when he looks at it. Here, here's a bowl of worms for you. Have at it. Okay? They're just like us. They're just people. We came to love those people. This is Big Fire. Big Fire is one of my closest friends there. Big Fire, like all the other Hoti, had never heard a word of the Bible before. Didn't know who Jesus was. But Big Fire was going to heaven. Big Fire was on his way to heaven. Just ask him. Hey, Big Fire, what happens to you when you die? Well, I'm going to the paradise place up there. There's another, in the Hoti worldview, there's another layer up there of earth. There's three layers of earth. It's not a round ball that we live on, right? This is what they used to think. They know the truth now. But there's three layers of earth, and the middle one is where we live, and the top one is paradise. It's heaven. You never die up there. You just keep shedding your skin, growing new skin. Uh, you never run out of food to eat up there because it's just everywhere. And you never get tired of your wife up there either. They always told me that when they were talking about heaven. What happens? Like, what's life up there? And they'd go down through the list of things. that, are, And that was always one they included. You never get tired of your wife up there. I found that pretty funny. 
So big fire, how do you know you're going to get up there to heaven? Big fire, if you asked him that, would probably reach up his nose and pull out a little stick that's up in his nose. He's got a stick piercing the middle part of his nose up in there, and it's, it's, it's in there all the time. Because when, when you die as a Hoti, you have to walk the trail of the dead to get to heaven. And there's a house you have to pass by, and in that house is a giant old woman spirit. She's as big as a tree. She comes out of her house and she snatches you up off the ground as you're on your way to heaven and she looks up your nose. She sees the stick up there. She says, I can't eat you and she lets you go to heaven. But if she doesn't see the stick up your nose, she eats you and your soul ceases to exist. And that guy right there, big fire, and every generation of Hoti that came before him died believing that. Didn't get him to heaven. Didn't work. I grew up in a place that knew that the creator of the universe became a man and took my sin on himself and bore the entire wrath of God against sin upon his own body so that he could offer his forgiveness and mercy and life to me. That's what I get to trust in and he's got a stick in his nose. It didn't really seem too fair. That's the Hoti last picture I took of them as we left about 10 years ago. The government expelled our mission back in 2006. They said we were CIA spies, which we weren't. And uh, they made us leave. I took that picture as we were flying out, and I remember looking down on that picture thinking, you know, I'm sure thankful that everybody looking up in that picture is uh, a believer. The whole valley embraced the gospel, except for two people. And one of those two people who didn't has since become a believer. Big Fire's wife is the only person in the valley that we never uh, knew. Did, she never professed to ever believe. Uh, whether she ever did or not, I don't know. But I just remember thinking, you know, I remember, I actually remembered the account in the scriptures that I want to touch on for a few minutes this morning. Uh, the, the phrase, true worshipers. And I remember looking down thinking, those are true worshipers down there of the, of the risen Savior, the risen Son of God. As we flew away, we've never been able to go back in there. The government will not allow us to go back in there. It's all been cut off by the military. We were able to learn the language and share the gospel with them. There they are under a, a, a big roof that they built to hear the gospel under. They came day after day, every morning. If you taught four hours, they'd stay four hours. We didn't teach four hours. I don't want you to panic and think I'm going to teach four hours or not. Uh, we usually go about two hours, though, and they'd hang in for all of it. This picture was taken just a, a couple years ago. I didn't take this picture. Again, I haven't been able to be back in the village in ten years. But we gave a, a digital camera to a guy, and we said, go take some pictures because we want to see what it looks like because I was able to meet up with some Hoti believers out in the city. I still am able to do that occasionally, get them out by air, go through some scripture, they go home and they teach the rest of the church. And he came out with these pictures and, and this is the Hoti church in there. Picture's not the greatest quality, but I was so thrilled to see this. This is 10 years after the missionaries left. Church is packed. Packed wall to wall with people. Some people in there I don't even recognize. And that's not the only church. There's other churches. They've spread out since we left and there's churches in other locations 
that they have gone and planted amongst the Hoti people group. And just to hear their stories, it's thriving. Last time I was with them, they told me there's now about 17 guys who are actively Bible teachers and church planter type guys that are either teaching the church there, the mother church, or out sharing the gospel. They were true worshipers. Which brings to mind this story, and I want to spend our few moments that we have left, minutes of about 25 minutes left here. I want to just take our minds back to this story. Our Lord was uh, traveling by foot from Jerusalem down there in Judea, heading north to Galilee, and he had to go through Samaria, if you remember. And he stops at that little... T- I don't know how to pronounce the name Sychar, Sychar, S-Y-C-H-A-R. To be honest, I don't know how to pronounce that. I would say Sychar, I guess. He stopped there to get a drink. And it was right at a place where Jacob had given a piece of land to Joseph. And there was a well there that was dug, at least owned at some point by Jacob, whether Jacob dug it himself or not, but it was referred to as Jacob's well. And the Lord sits down there, and a lady comes out of the town, and she starts to have a conversation with him. If we pick it up here, I just want to look at a few verses in John chapter 4, verses 19 to 20. It says, The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. This lady is initially shocked. If we, if we had time, we could go through the whole context there, but we don't. I didn't want to take the time to go through all the verses. You could read that yourself. I'm sure you're very familiar with it. But this lady was initially shocked that Jesus would even converse with her. He was a Jew. She was a Samaritan woman. The Jews had nothing to do with the Samaritans. If you look into the history of why that is, it's fascinating. I kind of like history, so I like looking into like the context of some of these things. That region called Samaria, that's between Galilee in the north and Judea in the south. You go back, way back in Israel's history, when uh, the Assyrian king came in and conquered the southern kingdom there and took them off into captivity, he soon afterwards sent Gentile peoples in to inhabit that land. So he took the Jewish people out, sent Gentile people into that Samaria region. Over time, the Samaritans began to have trouble in life, things that were going wrong and things they couldn't figure out. And they went to the, to the king of Assyria and they said, we don't know who the god of this region is and we don't know how to make him happy. We need some of those Jewish people to come back in and teach us about the god of this land. Typical animus, I guess who believe that there's gods for certain lands. Well, the king of Assyria sent some Jewish priests back in there. And over time, more Jews came back in. And so you had this mixture of Gentile pagan peoples from wherever they came from into Samaria and Jewish priests and Jews coming back in and inhabiting. And they intermarried and they adopted each other's religion and it became this messed up, syncretized pagan mess. And the Jews from Judea below looked at them as, you know, just complete pagans up there. We don't have anything to do with them. Won't even talk to them. 
So Jesus sits down by the well and this woman comes out and he starts talking to her. And that surprises her. In verses 10 to 14 leading up to this, Jesus starts to reveal to her who she is. He says uh, at one point that uh, he says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's speaking to you, you would ask him and he would give you living water. If you knew the gift of God. Now, any well-taught Jewish person who would hear that phrase, the gift of God, would know exactly what he's referring to, right? There is one, the gift of God. It's that one he promised way back in the Garden of Eden, the coming Redeemer, that he re-promised to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, the promised Messiah that they were looking for. If you knew the gift of God and who it is who's speaking to you, as in, that's me, you would ask and he would give you living water. Well, where, sir, are you going to get that living water? You don't even have a, a pot to dip into the well. She doesn't know who he is, right? She doesn't really catch on to who he is till the very end when he pretty much reveals it outright. But by verse 19, she knows that he's someone special. Because he's told her all kinds of things about her that no one else could know. She's had five husbands. She's living with a sixth guy who's not her husband. How could you possibly know this about me? I've never seen you in my life. You must be a prophet. So she asks him the, verse, uh, the question in verse 20. She says this, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. I've thought about this as I've looked through this story before and I've thought, what a strange question for a lady to ask Jesus when she has just concluded that he's a prophet of God, he's come from God, he's special, he knows all of my life history. And the first question she wants to ask him is, is our temple the right temple or is your temple the right temple? It gives you a little glimpse maybe into that cult, like that was a big deal. There was a temple on the mountain that they were next to, Mount Gerizim. And it was a temple that was built in that region because the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, had worshipped in that region. And so there was a temple built there. The history of that temple is fascinating also. That was built by a, the brother of the high priest in the temple in Jerusalem. He actually fell in love with the daughter of the governor of Samaria, who was a pagan lady. By that I mean, you know, non-Jew, animistic, pagan type lady. Fell in love with her, married her, and he got expelled, of course, from the temple in Jerusalem for such a thing. So his father-in-law, the governor, built him a big temple so that he could be the high priest of that temple. So what do you think the Jews from Jerusalem thought of that temple? Uh, that's, that's the, uh, you know, what would, whatever we would call those, that's, that's the bad boys up there. You know, that's the rebels up there. Of course, Solomon's temple is in Jerusalem. So which temple is it? Which temple is it? And Jesus' reply to her is what I want to focus on for a few minutes. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. She was standing, she was, whether she was standing or sitting, I don't know. She was standing at a point in human history that was a watershed. She didn't know it. You and I know it because we have our 
scriptures, they're completed, we can read the whole story. If you could sort of step back, which I like to, I'm a big picture type of person, I like to see the, I'm not a, much a detail person, I like the big picture story. And as I look at this story, I see, there's, here's this conversation happening that is right on the prep, precipice of a major, major shift in human history that has massive ramifications for you and me. And he alludes to it in this comment right here. Believe me, there's an hour coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. About 40 years later, the temple in Jerusalem completely destroyed. Not one stone left on the other, just as Jesus had prophesied. About 80 years after this conversation, the temple on Mount Gerizim completely destroyed by the nation of Israel itself after they had come back together to be a nation. They destroyed that temple on Mount Gerizim. So within 80 years of this conversation, neither temple in Jerusalem or on Gerizim would even exist. And this lady is saying, which temple do we, which one's the real one? That one or this one? A lady... Neither one of these temples are even going to exist within the next 80 years. But I, I believe something even more profound was happening here. Believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. She did not understand that a shift much bigger than temples being destroyed was underway. A shift from a period of law, temple worship, ritualistic, following the procedures of the temple, coming to God that way, transitioning into a whole new period that you and I know to be the church age or the age of grace. She didn't know that the law was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator, until the seed would come to, who the, to whom the promise had been given. This system that she had grown up under, this temple worship system, was added after the promise, long after the promise of a coming Redeemer. 430 years after the promise was given to Abraham, the law was introduced. And it was introduced because of transgressions, as the Apostle Paul says, because of our sin, because of man's need to understand our lost condition, our sinful condition, and get us to look to that promised, that seed of the woman that was promised back there in the garden. And she is right on the precipice of that era coming to an end because the seed was sitting right there on the ground talking to her. The one promise clear back in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 who will come and crush the head of the enemy and redeem us. The one promised again to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. The one the nation has been looking to and looking for for their entire existence. Here he sits right on the ground in front of her. Paul says the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, right? That whole system she was operating under was like a school teacher, like an instructor that was to guide us as humans through the nation of Israel to the promised one who would come, to the only one who could save us. 
that system of ordinances and rules and outward worship, that, that was not intended to bring righteousness. That was intended to point us to the righteous one. To point us to the one who would take our sin for us and give his righteousness to us. She had no idea that that's who she was talking to. He finishes this by saying this. But an hour is coming, and now is, when, true worshiper, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. True worship, the Lord Jesus says here. True worshipers will, will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. This system, we're moving away from it. These temples, they will be gone. This outward form of ritualistic temple worship set aside. And the true worshipers, the hour is coming and it's here now. It now is. Why is it here now? Because the one she's talking to is the one we've been waiting for. When the true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. Spirit in spirit. From the from the inner man, from the heart, right? The Lord's telling this woman, true worship will come from within, from the heart. God's not looking for what you do out here with your hands in the ritualistic form and all this that you think is so pleasing. He wants the heart. And it'll be in truth. It'll have to be based in the truth of who He is. He's the Son of God. For such people... The Father seeks to be His worshipers. I want you to think about the import of that statement for a moment. In our day, in the age that you and I live in, in the age that was being introduced right now at this conversation in history, a period was beginning in which the Father would be seeking true worshipers to worship Him. From among the nations... In fact, if we follow the story through, uh, we could focus on a number of them. I just want to point out just a couple statements from the New Testament that are related to this. In Acts chapter 15, this is not too much after the conversation the Lord had with the Samaritan woman. We read this in Acts chapter 15. Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. With this, the words of the prophets agree. Simeon has just related to us, just communicated to us, how God is taking out a people for His name from among the nations. And the prophets of old, they agreed with this. They foretold this. In fact, here's one of them. Malachi chapter 1. This is about 400 years uh, before the Lord came. Malachi said this, For from the rising of the sun, even to its setting. Okay, how, what are we talking about? From the rising of the sun. I don't know which is east and west here, forgive me. <laughs> east. From the rising of the sun. Am I right? Opposite. To the going down of the same. Oh, you guys have me confused now. And wherever I'm standing on the earth, from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same, 
My name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense is going to be offered in my name. We know from Scripture that incense is often a picture of of the prayers of the saints, right? Incense will be offered in my name and a grain offering that is pure. Pure worship. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. This was prophesied hundreds of years before the Lord came. And the Lord is referring to that in His conversation with this woman. An hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. She didn't know she was on the precipice of an age that you and I call the church age, right? We're familiar with that term, the church age. It's that period of history from the point when the Spirit descended and inhabited believers until that point that's yet to come in the future when He snatches the church out to take us to be with Him in the Lord uh, in the air. That period of history, human history that we're living in, is called scholars. Bible scholars refer to it as the church age. Have you ever wondered why they chose? Like, why do we call it the church age? Is it because, you know, in this age, God wanted a church in every town in the world, maybe? Churches everywhere? I'm sure He does want that, but that isn't why it's called the church age. It's called the church age because the word church defines what God is doing in this age. And we know that that word church is not an English word, it's a borrowed word, right? And its origins are back in the Greek word ekklesia, which means a gathering. A gathering. So this age that we live in, characterized and actually named the age of the gathering. The gathering of who? Gathering of what? It's a people for His name. That's what James said. A people for His name. From among all the nations. We also know it as the bride of Christ. We also know it as the body of Christ. In this age that you and I live in, it was a mystery, by the way, to the Old Testament saints. They didn't know this age was coming. When God would put the, the prophetic clock of the nation of Israel on, kind of hit the button and put it on pause, while He calls out a people for His name in the age of the called out ones. And when He's done with that, in the twinkling of an eye, the church is pulled out and we go up to be with Him. And we go right into that tribulation period when the Lord returns His focus to the nation of Israel and then into the millennial kingdom and then into eternity future. But in this age that we live in, we're in that age where He's calling out true worshipers. A people for His name from every people group in the world. And we know from Revelation chapter 5, verse 9 that He's going to be successful in this. This is a glimpse into the future around the throne in heaven, singing a song of praise to God. Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation. That, that has not happened yet. That's yet future. As I was watching Seth this morning lay out those people groups there on the island of New Ireland in Papua New Guinea, and there's still 20 of them left that they're not, they're not up there yet. 
They're a unique tribe. They're a unique tongue. They're a unique people. They're a unique nation. And there isn't a single one of them who's, at this point, able to be in that group yet because they've never heard the gospel. None of them are are God worshipers. None of them could sing the song to the Lamb because they've never heard about it. It's still yet happening. Where are we at in that process? Well, there's about 7,000 languages in the world. I don't know if you were aware of that. If, you're, if that's the first time you've heard that, that's maybe a little surprising to you. 7,000 languages in the world? If I had to start naming them, I'd probably run out of languages before I run out of fingers. I, I can't think of that many languages, but there are. Of those almost 7,000 languages, 375 of them have some of the Bible in their language. 530, plus or minus, have a whole Bible, Genesis to Revelation. Of course, English would be one of those, right? We have almost 400 versions of the Bible in our language. But we're only one of the 531 languages in the world that have the entire Bible in the language. Roughly 2,000 have the New Testament in their language. Roughly 2,200 of them are getting the Bible translated into their language right now for the first time in history. And that leaves roughly 1,800 languages on the earth still today, 2017, that do not have a single verse of God's Word in their language. They do not have access to the Gospel. They have no way to hear the story that God came to earth and shed His blood for our sin. Unless somebody goes learns their language and puts God's Word into their language so that they can hear it. And really that's, in a nutshell, right, that's what this mission's special emphasis weekend that you're having, that's what it's all about. There are people all around you right now in your life, right, that you run into that don't know the message. God wants them to hear the message too. You better believe it. And we're His mouthpieces, right? He's committed unto us the word of reconciliation. But as we're doing that, as we're reaching out in our community to the people that we run into, we can't forget about the people groups that don't have anybody in their community like you. They don't have any Alfred Almond Bible Church. I said that very carefully because I learned something new this weekend too. I learned how to properly pronounce the name of your town. I heard if you say it almond, they'll know you're a foreigner. Did I say it right? Alfred Almond? Okay. Close enough? No church like this in their community. No believers like you that they rub shoulders with at work. We can't forget about those people. Yes, let's reach as much as we can here, but let's also send them out. I was so privileged, my wife and I were so privileged to have a front row seat to to be used by the Lord to help bring His Word to a people group that had never seen a word of it before, never heard a word of it before. And true worshipers, He raised them up and there's hundreds of them there now. And, you know, as a father, it's pretty fun to think about my boy going out with his wife and Maybe getting to do that same thing. And I get to be here with this church and, and 
fellowship and worship with you and realize that this church has been sending out missionaries all over the world and having that same impact with people groups all over the world. And my message to you guys is just be encouraged. Don't quit. That's all going to get done. There's going to be representatives of every one of those people groups around the throne in heaven. God says it. It's going to happen. You want to miss out on that? I don't. I know you don't either. You wouldn't be here. You probably wouldn't be part of this church if you, you didn't really care about that, right? So let's, my, I guess my, my closing word of encouragement to you is just hang in the fight. Don't give up. Keep going. Stay engaged because it's, it really is at the heart of what God is doing in the world today. He's calling out true worshipers from every people group on earth. May he use you. May he use us to be part of that. I'm going to just have a word of prayer and then I believe we're going to have a few songs. Father, thank you for the privilege that we have to be part of what you're doing in the world today. Thank you that we get to worship right now with a group of true worshipers. Thank you that you're still raising up true worshipers from all over the world and people groups all over the world. And uh, may this church stay fully engaged in that. May you use them mightily in the decades that come, however long we still have left down here. Uh, may you continue to use them right in the midst of what you're doing. In Jesus' name, amen.